Why don't you take your Bible with me this morning and turn to Matthew chapter 26, if you're not still there, from the scripture reading. Matthew 26 is where we're going to be. Getting back into our study through the book of Matthew, which we've been in for quite some time, but be finishing up this great book within the next couple of months. Uh, Typically what we do here, if you're pretty new to us, is we walk through books of the Bible. We feel like that's the best way to get a sense of what God has to say to us. We just simply walk through uh, book by book, um, as many books as we can get through uh, in our lifetime together, and just walk chapter by chapter or passage by passage, and just see what God has for us. And by the way, if you do not have a Bible, there are some black Bibles around, uh, the seats, but also if you just frankly don't have a Bible at all, there are some white Bibles on the back bookshelf uh, that you can grab as our gift to you. But I've entitled this sermon this morning, Acts of Love and Betrayal. And I wonder if you've ever been a recipient of these kinds of acts. Maybe a a great act of love, other than, of course, the fact that Jesus has died for us and that he has risen from the dead on our behalf. Uh, That is also uh, obviously a great act of love that he has uh, given to all of us. But maybe somebody in your life has just gone out of their way. They were especially kind. They were especially loving to you to the point where it really made an indelible mark upon your life. Or what about an act of betrayal? Certainly acts of betrayal are never forgotten. You can think of some famous people who have betrayed, whether their country or others. You think of Benedict Arnold, right? Kelsey said it exactly as I said it. Benedict Arnold. Or John A. Walker. You familiar with John A. Walker? Spy for the Soviets in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Anybody heard of John A. Walker? One person. Great. So, uh, but Benedict Arnold, John A. Walker, and then of course, probably the most famous betrayal of all time, being Judas Iscariot. And maybe there was a really serious time in your own life where you felt like somebody actually betrayed you. You felt stabbed in the back or betrayed by somebody who was close to you, somebody who you really trusted, somebody who you really loved. And Jesus himself has been, had been, a recipient of both acts of love and betrayal, and I think we see both of them clearly within our passage this morning. And to let you even know where I'm going as we look at this together, I'm really heading for this, this ultimate question that I have for you. Do you value Christ supremely in your life because your actions and how you live will indicate the answer to that question? Okay, so the the big question is, do you... Value Christ supremely within your life. Your actions and how you live will indicate the answer. And so the first point that I want to make from this passage within the first couple of verses is that our king predicts his crucifixion. So there are acts of love and betrayal within this text. But to begin with, our king himself predicts that he will be crucified. Within the first few verses, we get the setting of these acts of love and betrayal. And verse 1 very clearly says um, that Jesus had finished all of these sayings, which I think refers to either the immediate context, where he had just given what's called the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and 25. And it says, and he had finished these sayings. Or it could be referring to all of the teachings that he had taught throughout the book of Matthew. There were five main discourses throughout the book of Matthew, and it may be that Matthew is summing it all up and saying, he has finished his teaching, because here on out, there are no more blocks of teaching. What's left 
is for him to die on the cross and for him to rise again. At this point within Matthew, in chapter 26, they're only a couple days from Passover. And there was much for Jesus to do in order for him to prepare for the crucifixion. And I want you to attempt to think about the state of Christ at this moment in time. We know that Jesus was fully God and fully man. In his divinity, he prophesies that he is going to be crucified, that he's going to die. But you can imagine that in his humanity, and we can all feel the humanity side of it very aptly, that in his humanity, this would have been a difficult thing to swallow. To know that you're going to die. Can you imagine knowing three days from now, I am going to die? None of us know when we're going to, but Jesus knew when he would die in his divinity. But in his humanity, that would have been a struggle. Just like for us, if it was said, in three days you're going to die, we would feel that. It would be a struggle for all of us. So as God, he knows he's going to die on the cross. And he knows why he came to this earth to to redeem, to save those who were lost. To redeem a people for God, to glorify the Father and all of his actions. And this pinnacle of the book of Matthew that is coming in the death and resurrection would have been very difficult again for the humanity of Christ to handle. This is why you even see him uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? Over in the book of John. And he's asking God, he's saying, let this cup pass from me, not your will, but my will. But he is in agony over the proposition that he is going to die. But if there is one thing that we have seen throughout the book of Matthew... It's that Jesus is always about his father's business. He's he's always seeking to please the father. And as such, it is the will of the father to crush the son. So the Old Testament tells us that it was actually the father's will to take his son, Christ, and to crush him. And so Jesus would go to the cross and he would bear the penalty for our sins. The son of man, he says, will be delivered up to be crucified. And the good thing is, of course, in his divinity... That he knows it would happen. So our king clearly predicts that he will be crucified. But next, we see that our king is plotted against. Look there with me in verse 3. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Okay, so Jesus first predicts that he's going to die. But then the religious leaders, they are are plotting his death. So they're gathering together at the palace of the high priest, this guy named Caiaphas. And they're thinking of how they can stealthily arrest Jesus and kill him. But as we looked at those verses, did you catch why they didn't want to go about it yet? Did you see that in verse 3? Where they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. So what was holding them back from going after Jesus right then and there? Verse 5. They were afraid of the people. The city of Jerusalem during the time of Passover would have swelled with thousands and thousands of more people. Many of them would have seen Jesus do wonderful deeds even within their own towns. You can imagine it being Passover and the hopes and dreams for a Messiah. All those Jews gathered together and they just cannot wait for their Messiah to come. And so it's like anticipating something really great. Something big is about to happen. You're on the edge of your seat with great anticipation like the Patriots winning the AFC Championship game tonight. And you're on the edge of your seat and you're waiting for that to happen. And it happens, of course. 
But the entire city of Jerusalem would have been on the edge of their seat, awaiting for the Messiah to come. Which is why, when Jesus rides into the city on that donkey a few days before this current setting, the people, they go nuts, don't they? They go absolutely nuts because the city is just swelled with people ready for their Messiah to come. And they want him to come. And so with that anticipation, they're hoping for him to come. They were actively looking for the Messiah. And for some of them, Jesus seems to fit the bill. So since he was popular with the people, the religious rulers, they decided they didn't want to riot. And so they didn't kill him during this time because they feared the people, which indicates to me that they feared the wrong thing, didn't they? That they should have feared Jesus. That they should have been worried about the fact that they were plotting against the Lord of the universe, right? The, the one who had the authority over the winds and the waves, we saw. The one who was able to walk on the water. The one who was able to heal the lame and the blind. And even the one who, in this chapter, in verse 53, he says, Do you not think that I can appeal to my Father, and he will at once send me twelve legions of angels? They should have been afraid of Jesus. That Jesus could have brought down the power of thousands of angels to absolutely obliterate these people. These religious rulers had absolutely no idea who they were dealing with, and yet they feared the people more than they feared Jesus. And one author said it this way, they never were afraid of the judgment of God, but only the judgment of people. And I don't want to think for a single second that we don't struggle with this. Now we struggle with the fear of man. This is one of the earliest things that I think that we probably struggle with, with peer pressure. This is why in your parenting, that you often have to deal with how your children respond when other kids do bad things, because it's always the other kids who are doing the bad things. Never your precious Johnny. Never. But your child steals candy because his friend stole candy, right? Because he felt pressured by his peer to steal candy because... The other guy stole candy. And then the classic parenting response, if Jimmy jumped off the bridge, would you jump off the bridge, right? But why did your child follow their friend and steal the candy? Because they fear their friend's opinion over your opinion in that moment. They fear their friend's opinion certainly more than God's opinion in that moment. But adults do the same exact thing. We do the same thing. And we fall right into the pressure of wanting to be accepted or doing things right in the eyes of other people. And so we choose to please people instead of pleasing God. In those moments, our fear of man is stronger than our fear of God. And it dictates how we act. And let me bring you back to what I asked you a few minutes ago. Because in those moments when you're feeling that pressure and wanting to please other people more than God, this is, a question, this is where the question of where your value of Christ comes in. So do you value Christ supremely in your life? Because your actions and how you act in that moment where you feel the pressure of people to do the wrong thing, that's when the question comes into play. So these religious rulers had absolutely no value for Christ. They didn't value him at all, so their actions followed suit, and they plotted against him to kill him. And it's the same for us. There are times where we place a very low value on Christ, and our actions in times where the peer pressure, the pressure of others is strong, and it indicates that we place more of a value on what other people think than upon what God thinks. 
Our struggle between fearing God and fearing man will always be a losing battle until Christ is given his supreme value, causing us to want to please Jesus more than we please others. And so the timing is not good for these religious leaders to go after Jesus. They knew the people would hate them for going after him. And so they decide not to do it, at least for the moment. So our king predicts his death in those first couple verses. In the next several verses, we see that our king is plotted against. But I want to spend most of our time in the next couple points. The third point being, our king is prepared for burial. And this is just a a well-known text to all of us, where this woman comes to Jesus and she anoints him with that oil. This is such a beautifully tender scene. Jesus is in the town of Bethany in this house of Simon the leper. Now, Simon probably wasn't a leper anymore, which is why they were all able to be in his house with him. And the leprosy that he had may not have been as bad as we often think about it, but I think it's kind of funny that they still refer to him as Simon the leper. It's kind of like you know, oh, there's so-and-so the eczema, or so-and-so the psoriasis, right? It's like, oh, there's Simon the leper. But they are at Simon's house, and in John chapter 12, in a parallel account to this one, in Matthew 26, John tells us that Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised, uh, Martha and Mary, all of these people were present, not Mary, Jesus' mother, but Mary, Jesus' friend. So we know at least the disciples and Lazarus and Martha and Mary are all at this house. And while all of the men are reclining at the table, which is what they would have done, it wouldn't have been chairs like the ones you're sitting in. They would have been more laying down with a shorter table during this time. Mary, as we know, comes up to Jesus and she breaks open this ointment. Now what we know of this ointment is that it was worth an incredible amount of money. But it was also for reasons of just, frankly, just stench. Where, where people would be out on those dusty roads in Palestine, walking around, no deodorant, no bathwash, no none of that sort of stuff. So when you would go to somebody's house, they would often clean your feet, and they would anoint you with all this kind of ointment, so that really for everybody else's sake, they didn't just sit there and stink. And so this ointment was for that purpose, but it was also very expensive, John 12 tells us that the ointment is worth at least 300 denarii, which would have been about a year's wages. Now, I'm not sure what exactly the average wage is in Maine, but let's just say that the average wage is between 30 and 45,000 or 50,000, somewhere in that bracket. And that will begin to give you some semblance of how much this ointment was worth. In our minds, between 30 and 50 grand. My guess is, other than your home, none of you own anything worth around 40 grand. Maybe you do. But Mary comes and she begins to put this ointment on the head of Jesus. And John 12 says that she also put it on his feet. And she wipes his feet with her hair. And so when we put these two passages together, we can rightly assume that Jesus, from his head all the way down to his toes, is loaded with this ointment. These actions by Mary, they're nothing. We haven't seen anything like this in the book of Matthew to this point. So often Jesus is going about and he's the one who's doing all of these great acts. He's the one who's doing all of the the healing and all those acts of love for other people. Yet, Yet here is a situation where a woman is doing a beautiful act of love for him, ultimately preparing him for the greatest act of love that he would do for all of us, prepping him for his burial. And so there Mary is. You can imagine her standing there next to Jesus. She's got that empty flask 
in her hand. She had quite literally given Jesus probably the most expensive thing that was hers to give. She had put herself out there in a way that we have not seen before. It would have been strange even for her as a woman to be exposing her hair in that kind of a setting with all of those men there. But I want you to see in verse 8 how the disciples respond when they see what she does. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. So Mary is serving Christ in this beautiful way. And the only thing that the disciples can come up with is indignation and why this waste? We see in John 12 that Judas Iscariot is really the one who is the head of this instigation with the likelihood of the disciples following him um, in in this situation. And Judas, of all people, questioning the act of love that Mary is performing. John tells us in, in his gospel, Judas said this not because he cared about the poor, because they go on to say, well, why this waste? This ointment could have been sold in the 300 denarii. That could have all been given to the poor. That could have fed a whole lot of people. And Judas said this, John says, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charged the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. So the disciples, particularly Judas, they are indignant. They view this act as wasteful. And they say, couldn't this have been sold? And the money given to the poor, which sounds really, really pious, until you remember the truth about fork-tongued Judas. His words here about giving to the poor are worthless. They're wasted words. He he has no heart to feed the poor. Judas was so good at this game of wording things correctly and playing the hypocritical role that the disciples had no clue that he was even going to be the one to, to, to betray Jesus. They had no clue. That's why later on, when they're sitting around at that table uh, during the Passover, they're like, well, who's going to betray you, Jesus? Is it I? Is it I? Judas gave no indication that he was going to be the one who would be the one to betray. Yet we know his heart from these texts. They call the breaking of the alabaster flask and the pouring of ointment on Jesus a waste. But what's important is what does Jesus think? Verse 10, she has done a beautiful thing to me. Isn't that a contrast? The disciples say, what a waste. And Jesus says, beautiful. And I don't know about you, but I want the eyes of Jesus. I want to see beautiful what Jesus sees as beautiful. I want to see as wasteful what Jesus sees as wasteful. And he goes on to say that this act of love ultimately was a preparing of him for his burial. We don't know if Mary knew exactly what she was doing. Certainly a chance that she could have had the eyes to see the truth about his crucifixion. The fact that he had predicted four times that he was going to die. Maybe she saw that truth whereas the disciples obviously still weren't making the connections. But regardless, it is how Jesus receives her actions as a preparing for his burial, and the disciples who had just told for the fourth time that he was going to die, they should have made that connection. Come back to this part of the text in a little bit when we see the contrast between the acts of love and the acts of betrayal, but I want you to see the fourth point before we do that, and it's this. 
Our king is played by Judah. So Jesus predicts his death. Our king is plotted against. Our king is prepared for burial. And Judas plays our king. Look with me at verse 14. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. So Judas Iscariot. I mean, is there a disciple that we may not even be more familiar with, right? Just vivid his actions within these pages of the Bible. He goes to the religious leaders, those guys in the beginning of our text who were seeking to get rid of Jesus anyway, and he asks them, Judas asks them a revealing question, what will you give to me for me to deliver him over to you? And what's he walk away with? 30 pieces of silver. I think in our minds, we think, 30 pieces of silver, that'd be a pretty nice sum to have. But in this time... 30 pieces of silver would have been worth, in our money, between two and six hundred dollars. This has been the, the price for a common slave. One author said it this way, Judas is so eager to be rid of Jesus that he is willing to accept next to nothing to betray him. He's willing to betray Jesus for a few hundred bucks. And this is where I want you to see the contrast between Mary's act of love and Judas's act of betrayal. That Mary was willing to give all that she had to Christ because she valued him above everything else. But Judas was willing to give up Christ for some very measly amount. This is totally clear from the passage that Mary has this supreme value of Jesus. And so to give up her most expensive possession is nothing to her. This might be a poor illustration, but it's like when two people are in the throes of love and they buy a gift for the other person. That, you know, I remember even going to buy Bethany's engagement ring. And you go and you spend all of that money, and it's like, whatever, no big deal. I love her. So the the money on this ring is absolutely nothing. And I'm sure you've had that feeling. You you love somebody. Maybe it's at Christmas time for your grandkids or whatever. It's like, no, I don't care about the money. I love you, and I want to lavish you with these gifts. So it doesn't really even hurt at all from a financial perspective because that person is so valuable in your eyes already. And from Mary's perspective, Jesus is supremely valuable and deserving of her greatest possession. Mary had an obvious love for Jesus, which motivated her to do this great act of love for him. And the same will be true for you and me. Some of you recall Jim Elliott, that great pioneer missionary to the Alka Indians. And he famously said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And the question for us is this. Is there anything that you cling to that you know that you cannot keep? Are you clinging to stuff or are you clinging to Christ? Is there anything that you have that is too valuable to you to give up for Jesus? Mary is worshiping Christ. She's serving him. She doesn't care what all the men at the table are thinking. She cares about what Christ thinks. And he says what she has done is beautiful. And for her to hear those words, can you imagine the the affirmation that would just sweep over her? That she's standing there among all of those men. She had given him all that she had. And the men are jeering her. And Jesus is affirming her. Can you imagine the feeling she must have had and really only caring what Jesus cared about anyway. And it wasn't because simply what she had was valuable. 
It was what the love behind the action demonstrated. That Jesus was more valuable to her than anything. And the truth is that most of us don't live this way. That we don't have this kind of reckless abandonment concerning the things that are most valuable to us. That we're always hedging our bets and making sure that our reserves are stockpiled. We always think in terms of what we can afford instead of what we could sacrifice. We think in terms of what is ours instead of what we can give. We think in terms of what's in it for us instead of how God is worshipped in the situation. Oftentimes we don't think the way Mary thought. We don't, we don't stand there with an empty flask poured out all for Christ. We work to reserve as much of that ointment for ourselves that we can. And Judas, on the other side, he could not have, have been more on the other side of the spectrum. And this is where the disparity lies. The value of the earthly treasure compared with the treasure that Christ is. 30 pieces of silver is nothing. And like the great value of the ointment demonstrates Mary's great love for Christ, the little value of the silver demonstrates the little care that Judas had for Jesus. And so I wonder about all of us, myself included, what is the price for all of us to sell out on Jesus? Would you sell out on Christ for a big financial amount? big check? Would you sell out on Christ for the opportunity at a new start in life, in a new place? Would you sell out on Christ for an illicit relationship? What is your price to sell out on Jesus? Friends, the truth about Judas is the truth about us. That close proximity to Jesus does not always mean that we love him. Coming here every Sunday does not necessarily mean that we love him. Judas spent three years with Jesus, every single day with Jesus, and that proximity to Jesus did not demonstrate his love, very obviously. He was with Christ, the God over all. You can imagine seeing firsthand, you're an eyewitness account of almost every marvelous deed that Jesus had ever done. He had heard all of the teachings, and even though he had seen all of this, he remained ice cold toward him and was willing to betray him for next to nothing. Some of you have had the opportunities to see God do incredible things. You've seen God literally breathe spiritual life into people and cause your children to come to spiritual life or to cause your friends and your family to come to spiritual life. You've seen God do incredibly incredible things. And even in your own life, God has grown you a miraculous amount. But is there a price where you would say, leave Jesus for, for that amount? Leave Jesus for that thing? Sure. Or is our attitude that of the songwriters, the take the world but give me Jesus mindset? Or that I'd rather have Jesus in silver or gold, or you are my everything and I will adore you. Is Jesus the treasure in your life that everything else bows down to? I found this quotation this week as I've been reading through a book called The Pursuit of God. And the author says this, The man who has God for his treasure has all things in one. Many ordinary treasures may be denied him, or if he is allowed to have them, the enjoyment of them will be so tempered that they will never be necessary to his happiness. Or if he must see them go one after one, he will scarcely feel a sense of loss. For having the source of all things, he has in one all satisfaction, all pleasure, all delight. Whatever he may lose, he has actually lost nothing, for he now has it all in one, and he has it purely, legitimately, and forever 
Is that the way that you see your relationship to Christ? That Christ, God, is your treasure. The things of this world could leave you one by one. And the sense of loss about those things, there would be hardly none of that. Because he's what you esteem and he's what you value above everything else. And so you know you'll never lose him. So you know you have everything anyway. In closing, let me, let me give you one final thought. Acts of treasure in Christ are worthy of being told all over the world. Acts of treasure in Christ are worthy of being told all over the world. Look with me in verse 13. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And here we are in Windsor, Maine, thousands of years and thousands of miles from where this happened. And we're still talking about the beautiful account of this woman and her sacrifice for Christ and how she treasured him. But also we're still talking about the betrayal of Judas. We're thousands of years and miles away from what Judas did and how they undervalued Christ. And I think that's an important lesson for us because we know that life is transient. We all know that the Bible says that life is just a a vapor and it comes and it goes so quickly. And when we die, is it going to be clear or cloudy to our children and grandchildren and our church family what we treasured most? One of the privileges I have as a pastor is the privilege of burying you. And I, I say that sincerely. It's, it's a privilege to bury saints who have long lived their life for Christ. That's why I wear a suit every now and then, so you know I have something nice to wear at your funeral. <laughs> Sorry. But it's customary before a funeral for the person presiding over the funeral to do, to just sit with them and discuss your life and what drove you, and what you cared about. And as your pastor, I'll know a lot of that already. But what will your family say about you? Will they say without a doubt that you, in your life, you were recklessly abandoned to Christ because he was of supreme value to you? Friends, do you value Christ supremely in your life because your actions and how you live will indicate the answer? And my hope and prayer for all of us is that because we valued Christ supremely, we will impact those around us, all to the praise of his glory. Will you pray with me? Lord, give us this kind of heart to value you above everything else, knowing that everything else is nothing in comparison to what we have in you. And so, Lord, I pray that you will, by your grace, push us on and in to great acts of love, even knowing that serving one another is serving you. And Lord, I pray that you'll give our church this kind of heart. Help us to value you above all things. We thank you for your word. We thank you for loving us. And and we thank you most of all for, for Christ and what he did for us on the cross, only a few short pages away from where we are in the book of Matthew now. And we're thankful for that great act of selfless love. In Jesus' name, amen.